Kia ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene, he kona i purangi tene e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. So today we are chatting to someone who knows all there is to know about orange-fronted kakariki, Andrew Legault. Hi, Andrew. Kia ora, Erica. Kora Andrew, toko ngoa. How's it going, Erica? Thank you very much for joining us. I'm a little bit excited about this one because they're one of my favourite birds. They got bird of the year, f- uh, they came fourth, didn't they, a couple of years ago? They were close, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah they're beaten out each year. Not yeah. quite a cigar. So tell me about your role at DOC. I'm a science advisor, so I... Um, provide advice on the recovery of the orange-fronted parakeet. And how did you get into that? Well, I first started working on parakeets during my PhD. Um, So I was doing research over in New Caledonia. And at the time, I was based in Tasmania and going and doing field work in the rainforest, um, studying a few different species over there. Amazing. Do you have favorite species from each of those places? Um, I'd say the horned parakeet was was up there. They've got quite a cool, like, crest on the top of their head with a few... um, Feathers just kind of poke up, and uh, it's pretty distinctive. So it's always parakeet, clearly. Oh, not always parakeets. I mean, <laughs> I, I like other other species as well. And you're allowed to. <laughs> that's fine. So can you tell me what your work involves at DOC? My work varies from day to day. Um, it may involve things like data analysis or providing advice or generating ideas to help with the recovery of orange-fronted parakeets. Um, so it's usually a mixture of field work and office work. It really comes down to the time of year and what's required. Mm-hmm. So at times I could be up climbing a nest tree or other times maybe in the office um, having discussions or writing emails and proposals and that sort of thing. The tree climbing bit does sound like you've got the best job in the world to me. It's one of the better uh, perks of the job for I sure. I bet. I've seen photos. I'm like, how did they get up there? And it's, it's this pulley system, isn't it, with you? Yeah, more or less. I mean, you use um, ascenders to get up. And then once you're up there, you switch to a descender and you can mm-hmm. sort of rappel down um, like in the movies. Just like James Bond is where I'm going with that. (laughs) So orange-fronted kakariki is our rarest parrot. It's what come back from the dead twice and it got declared extinct and now it's classified as nationally critical. But there used to be almost too many of them. Is that right? Not too many. There's no such thing as too many native species, but... Well, I think a lot of the reports that came in um, about having loads and loads of parakeets weren't necessarily associated with orange fronts, but they were also they were more associated with kakariki in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd see a lot of mixed species flocks, mm-hmm. um, and I think a lot of people didn't actually differentiate between the different species. So um, it's hard to say exactly how common orange fronts were, but you can imagine they would have been much more widespread than they are today. Okay, so you mentioned there there are a couple of species and subspecies of parakeet in New Zealand. Can you tell us about the differences between them? What what ones do we have? Um, the main ones are the um, red crowned parakeets, yellow crowned parakeets, and of course the orange fronted parakeet. Um, the main differences are associated with their coloration. So with the orange fronted parakeet, you'll have a frontal band that's between the eyes, just above the beak. Um, that's colored orange. Mm-hmm. And, and with the yellow crown, that's actually colored red. Um, with the red-fronted parakeet or the red-crowned parakeet, the frontal band extends over the eyes and back over the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, and with both the orange front and the yellow crown, they've got um, 
while a yellow crown, as the name suggests. So there are a few other characteristics, characteristics that we look at as well. For example, um, all the species have a rump spot. So with an orange-fronted parakeet, you'll have like an orange rump spot, um, which is just sort of a patch of orange on either side of the bird. Um, and also the coloration of the plumage in general is a little bit different. So orange-fronted parakeets have this blue-green plumage as opposed to yellow crowns, which have uh, an olive-green coloration. Wow. So very brightly colored, beautiful birds. Yep, and difficult to see in the canopy because they pretty much blend in. I bet. Yeah. Must be needle in a haystack. Just for listeners, because we will probably interchange these, the orange-fronted kakariki and the orange-fronted parakeet are the same species. Kakariki is the Tereo word for green and also for parakeet. So, Andrew, with the different species or subspecies of parakeet in New Zealand, um, is it true that the red-crowned parakeet exists low in the canopy, orange is in the middle, and yellow-crowned parakeet is up top, high in the canopy? Well, that's a prevailing theory at the moment. Um, unfortunately, it's a little bit dip- difficult to test because we don't have all of those species in the same areas. So we've got yellow, um, yellow crowns and orange-fronted parakeets on the mainland um, coexisting. And there is a slight um, distinction between the different strata, but it's not very well defined. Um, on islands, you have red-crowned parakeets, which forage along the ground. Um, but again, you have uh, a lot of um, overlap between the species. So you can see an orange-fronted parakeet at the top of the canopy feeding on beach seed, and you can see them feeding on the ground as well. So Okay, so it's not the traffic light that I want to visualize it as in Unfortunately, no. That's It'd all right. It'd be nice, though. <laughs> it would be great visuals. <laughs> um, so what habitat do you usually find them in? We've talked about canopies, but um, anywhere specific. Uh, they typically live in beach forests. Um, so... We find them in uh, mainly red beach, uh, especially where there are large trees that they can nest in. As far as we know, um, they're only located in three valleys, in Arthur's Pass National Park and Lake Sumner Forest Park. The only only other subpopulations at the moment are on offshore islands, and those have been translocated there. Right. Wow. So, Andrew, what are the key elements of population management when it comes to orange fronts? Yeah, we've got a number of different elements in place that we use to manage the population of orange fronts. Um, Probably the key one is predator control, and that's something that we're trying to do in a more dynamic way to cater to the needs of orange-fronted parakeets. Um, Captive breeding is also a really big component to the program now. Um, So we raise up a lot of birds in captivity and then release them at various locations on the mainland and on islands. Um, Associated with that, we've got a genetic screening program in in play, um, and that involves basically looking at what the best pairs are in captivity and matching them up so that we have the the best genetic diversity possible. So it's sort of like a matchmaking algorithm. I would watch that reality TV show if that were done. (laughs) Um, That's very cool. And what about banding? Yeah, so banding is something that uh, traditionally we sort of struggled with because this this species is um, really stressed out. Mm. And if you catch them in a mist net, chances are you might actually kill them. So um, we're trying to avoid that as much as possible. And so we're able to release birds with bands already on them and with transmitters as well. And that allows us to track them and to know um, their whereabouts and also to look at individual behaviors, which we've never had an insight into in the past. Do you do a soft release, like a an aviary that's an open door. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so the initial releases that we did um, were what we sort of term hard releases. Um, That would involve basically taking birds and just opening the crate and allowing them to fly out. 
Um, they weren't all that successful, so we switched to um, a soft-release procedure, which involves bringing the birds on site, uh, putting them into an aviary, and leaving them for about 48 hours or so to just become familiar with their surroundings and so that they're a little bit more settled when we open the doors and actually let them into the wild. Wow, and that works better. It seems to work a lot better, and it allows us to put out supplementary food as well, which they switch on to, and, and it helps them to sort of get anchored into the site. And what's a feeder cam? So a feeder cam is essentially a trail camera that's looking at feeders um, that um, allows us to gain insights into, again, behaviours and patterns of, of use. Um, so it's actually really useful to be able to tell who's using, using the feeders and um, when and where those birds are um, moving around. From, like, often you find them moving from one feeder to the next. And we've gained some really interesting insights in terms of how there's a n- transfer of knowledge from one bird to another. For example, we've seen birds transfer knowledge to wild birds. And so you can have wild birds coming in to use these feeders even though they've never seen them before. And you also have their offspring using the feeders as well. So you've got this sort of multi-generational knowledge transfer happening. So it's, it's pretty cool that we're able to pick up on that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. When species numbers are as low as they are with orange fronted kakariki, do you find yourself getting attached to particular birds, especially with the feeder cam that you can see them on? Well, I think it's definitely a lot more noticeable when we've got bands on birds that... Um, our staff sort of become attached to certain individuals. Um, and it's because you can actually see what they're doing from one day to the next. Because when you don't have bands, you may see a parakeet in one location. You don't know if it's the same one. Mm. So you can't pick up those patterns of behavior. Um, and you can't track nests from one or one nesting opportunity to another. Um, I mean, we did have uh, an example where we were out banding nestlings and... Um, we had about four nests that we wanted to climb during that day, and one of them we left right till the end because we figured there probably wasn't anything left. I think um, at the time we expected them to have already fledged, so they were probably over 35 days old, roughly. But we went to it anyways, and we checked out whether there was anything inside. And by the time we got up there, had a look inside, there was actually one bird left, and this bird was, um, you know, it was a pretty decent size. And it looked like he'd basically been um, just, you know, enjoying the, the life of staying at home and having his parents sort of feed him for much longer than he usually would. Um, <laughs> but we pulled him out of the nest and weighed him. Um, and during that process, I think he actually went off the scales because we, we were expecting a certain weight, which was, I think, about 60 grams. And that was the max weight for the scale. And, um, and he yeah, went, over, went that. over that. <laughs> And it's not unusual to have birds sort of um, gain quite a lot of weight before they fledge, but this was particularly a big one. Um, yeah, so we, we basically um, banded them and we put them back in the tree and um, waited for them to fledge. And sure enough, um, it wasn't long before we found him feeding at the feeder. So he was, um, yeah, he was, he was basically taught how to use that feeder by his parents because obviously you wouldn't know what a feeder looks like. Yeah. Um, and so we went back and forth a number of times to find this bird because he also had a transmitter on. And, you know, it was pretty regular to find him at that feeder. And he was actually <laughs> dominating. He was basically just chasing <laughs> other birds around. And, um, yeah, it was really pretty interesting to be able to sort of 
recognize that you know this is an individual he's got a different personality to all the other <laughs> birds and um it's kind of bullying you know. them at the fade egg yeah, I know it's my fade yeah oh. wouldn't let anybody else on yeah. that's quite an individual so orange fronts are particularly vulnerable during nesting can you talk us through that nesting cycle and why they're vulnerable then so nesting is actually um a link to food availability so if there's a lot of food around birds will begin showing behaviors of nesting or preparing to nest. And usually one of the first signs is that the male and the female end up pairing up together and they'll start prospecting different holes. So they'll go from one nest to the next or one potential nest to the next, just poking their heads inside a hollow and seeing if there's anything inside that's suitable. And often the male will be encouraging the female to go inside and have a look and the female will basically go in and see if she's happy with it or not. Um, eventually they'll find something that is suitable. Um, and once they breed, the female will go inside, lay her eggs, which could be anywhere from only a couple eggs or more. Sometimes we've, we've had up to nine eggs in the wild, um, more than that in captivity. Um, and then the female incubates those eggs. So she's sitting on eggs for probably, um, over three weeks, I'd say. And after that point, the eggs hatch into nestlings and she basically allows the male inside to nest, inside the nest to, to feed them. Prior to that, the male won't go inside at all and the female basically makes trips outside to be fed by the male. But during that whole time, she's very vulnerable to predation mm. because if there are predators in the area, they'll climb up and they yeah. could potentially take out not only the clutch but also the female. Because there's only, there's only one entrance, isn't there, to, to that? A lot of the time there is only one entrance. Some older trees have multiple um, holes that predators could enter into, but um, especially if there is only one entrance, it means that the, mm. whatever's inside is trapped. Yeah, fire safety 101. Mm. Um, and there's a, a slippery metal band that you put around when you, when you know that there's a nest in the tree, is that right? And that can stop predators? Yeah, we try to do everything that we can to protect mm. those nests because um, otherwise you could be losing the breeding females and the population just could just crash as yeah. a result. So that is one of the techniques that we use is to put a metal ba band around the nest tree but also around surrounding trees so that predators like rats or stoats can't climb up to the canopy and crawl across and then end up going for the nest. Sure. And when it's a good um, breeding season, like a mast or something, um, they can breed pretty continuously for a while. Is that right? We can see multiple clutches in, clutches in a row. Um, and the really interesting thing is that with orange-fronted parakeets, the female, once she's reached the stage where the chicks have hatched, she'll actually leave the nest and start laying elsewhere. So she won't necessarily wait until those chicks are fully grown and ready to fledge. She'll leave all the feeding up to the male. So he's coming back and forth feeding the chicks, and then he's going to the other nest where the, ne where the female is located and feeding her as well. So they've got two nests on the go within about maybe 50 metres, 100 metres away. Wow, that's a busy season. So a mast is great for orange fronts, but it's also um, great for predator numbers. So is that why these guys get called like a boom and bust species with a, a mast? Can you explain what happens in that situation? Yeah, a, a mass is basically a mass seeding event that's uh, caused by interannual fluctuations in temperature. So if you've had, say, like, you've just gone through um, a warm summer and the previous summer 
um, was much cooler, then you got a large difference in temperatures, and that, that can then result in a mast in the, in the following year. So when that happens, there's an abundance of seed, like the beech forests just, uh, they flower first of all, and then all of that seed sets, and then it provides an amazing quantity of seed for parakeets and all these other species who rely on it. Trouble is, once that seed hits the ground, you've got mice all over the place breeding, and um, unfortunately, those mice feed rats and stoats, and you end up with plagues of rats all around the place and when the mice and the seed runs out they then switch to birds and the same happens with stoats as well their numbers go up as a result of it all and then they also target birds in their nests. So you've got bigger populations of orange rats but also bigger populations of rats and stoats towards the end of a mast season. Exactly yeah unfortunately in some circumstances those predator numbers can become so high that they take out Um, a lot of the parakeets, a lot of the gains that we Mm. have as a result of the food supply. Yeah, that must be heartbreaking sometimes. So numbers-wise for places like Horden Valley, what does that mean? Um, You've talked about the post-mast in 2014. Yeah, so in 2014, we had quite a lot of breeding happening with the remaining birds, but there were probably only about 20 birds that we knew of. In comparison, we had thousands of rats being caught in traps, hundreds of stoats being caught. And you can imagine that there were so many predators out there Mm -hmm. that the losses were just too great. And essentially that population collapsed. So by 2015, we only had, I think, two sightings left of wild birds in that valley. And the following year, I believe that was down to one sighting. And since then, we haven't seen any birds in there at all. Right. So the mast season, it's great for both. But then, obviously, the predators take take it forward and it really booms and then busts for our native species. Definitely, yeah. And we need to be doing something to offset that effect. And that's where our other measures of um, population management come in. So what tools can we use in response to a mast event? The main tool that we use um, involves aerial sowing of 1080. Mm -hmm. And the reason being that we're covering huge areas that traps basically aren't effective over. We do have trap networks throughout these valleys, um, but they're mostly targeting stoats. And when you have thousands and thousands of rats running around, um, traps won't be enough to reduce their numbers to a low enough um, to low enough densities where they're not impacting orange-fronted parakeets or other species. And it's just not logical as well, is it, the trapping an entire area that size? In some cases, it's not feasible. I mean, you've got some areas that are so steep and rugged that um, trap lines just wouldn't be very effective or more efficient to run. Yeah. So what kind of challenges do you face in your work? I mean, there's always challenges coming up. Um, We had one example where genetic diversity was a major issue, and it continues to be an issue. Um, In the Poulter Valley, we were trying to get genetics out of there for a number of years, and nothing seemed to line up. So in terms of having birds or foster parents in captivity at the same time when we'd be ready to collect a clutch from the wild. And eventually that population also declined um, to fewer than a dozen birds, I'd say. And so we were looking at the last few remaining wild birds, and we made the call to basically try this new technique that I'd thought up, which was sort of like a a Judas release, more or less. So we'd 
release captive birds with the intention of them mating up with the wild birds, having a nest that we could then harvest and bring genetics into captivity. So we weren't sure if it would work at all, but um, we did try it. We had three different release sites in that valley, and we released a small number of birds to see whether they would find any mates. And sure enough, uh, shortly after the release, we found birds that were associating with the wild birds. Um, but it wasn't until the next year when we actually were able to find a nest. And initially, we actually took chicks back into captivity, which is, again, unusual. We don't usually do that. We usually take eggs, but that worked successfully. Um, and that same pair had another clutch within about 30 meters of the initial nest tree. And so we then had the opportunity to take eggs out. So we took about six of nine eggs out. And that boosted the genetic diversity in captivity. And it also left three eggs in the wild, which successfully hatched and fledged. So it was sort of a win-win situation then. Um, so, yeah, that worked out pretty well. That's fantastic. What a great result. So you get to do things like tree climbing, bird banding, all these things that look like the best day at work. What's your weirdest day at work been? Yeah, I can't think of a specific day that I'd consider particularly weird, but um, occasionally uh, we do have the field team sort of come in and bring little packages back to me. Um, sometimes these involve things like dead birds or rotten eggs or um, cat scat. So essentially dealing with that is, is a little bit weird, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And um, it's probably my own fault because, you know, <laughs> I was sort of requesting some of these things, but having sort of a pile of cat scat by my desk isn't that great uh, in the office. I just want to see the email we get. Does anyone have some cat scat I'm desperately looking for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was trying to get people um, interested in actually looking at the cat scat because I think we can actually pick out some really interesting patterns of cat distribution, mm -hmm. um, possibly looking at genetics. So if you've got cats in different areas, you can work out whether it's the same one or not. And you can also actually work out what cats are eating at various times of the year. So um, unfortunately, no, I didn't come across any takers. Um, that shocked but, me. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it would have been great to actually um, get that study underway because the sad thing is we've had scat come in where it's um, apparent that orange-fronted parakeets have been um, part of that cat's diet. No. Yeah. What's been your most memorable moment in your line of work? I, mean, I think in this job I get to do quite a lot of interesting things. Um, I've got memories of like, flying over Fjordland and seeing like the landscape there with waterfalls and you know wild forests and hidden valleys and that. But um, also, you know, tree climbing is a great experience. You're, you're up in the canopy and you can sort of just look out over these valleys, and it's pretty amazing to be able to do that as part of your work. Um, but I guess if I think back to sort of when I first started, um, I have a pretty good memory of the first nest that I found. Um, and that was actually during the first week when I started with Doc. Uh, so it was pretty amazing to be able to, to locate a nest of a you know, critically endangered species. And during that year, actually, I think we'd, we'd only found two up to that point. Um, and, yeah, so I remember sort of trying to track this bird back to a nest and essentially it just flew into a tree and disappeared, and I wasn't actually sure what was going on. But um, I was patient with it, and... I had to actually come back the next day and track it down again. And sure enough, I noticed that there was a bird flying in and it went straight into a hollow. And that nest was actually a pretty important find because that pair went on to have a second nest, which was um, something that we 
harvested or collected the eggs from, and it was the very last clutch that came out of the hoarding. So it was actually pretty important that we found that and we were able to get those genetics out before they disappeared forever. And you found that in your first week? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was a pretty cool feeling. Wow. Um, have you had a sort of biggest learning curve in your line of work? Um, yeah, I think what's surprised me is the amount of sort of collaboration and cooperation that's required to get things done. Um, you know, it's not just about one person. Um, you may have the best plans and strategies in, strategies in place, but, you know, we need to be working with other individuals, whether it's colleagues or um, partnerships with Naitahu, mm. uh, partnerships with people like uh, Christchurch Helicopters yes. who have really helped us out along the way. And um, so that for me has been um, a bit of a learning curve because it's not just about doing the work. It's actually about, you know, communicating with everyone else who's involved. So it is really about working together. What's something about your work that you wish everyone knew? I think people would be surprised to know that this species probably would be extinct if it weren't for the work that we've been doing over the last 20 years or so. Sure. Um, although they're at such low numbers now, um, there has been a huge amount of effort put in to make sure that you know we don't lose this species. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably the main thing that um, yeah. Yeah, I think is really useful for people to realize. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you nearly lost them in 1919 and then... Well, 1965 or something like that got declared extinct and that you've brought them back from the brink like that. Yeah, and more That's recently, um, you know, we've had mass, say, like in um, 2001, I think the population was down to 150 to maybe 500 roughly. So, you know, in the past 20 years or so, we've been in very low numbers, like just a few hundred birds left, and they've just been hanging on. And so each time that we have a mast... Mm you know, the population kind of goes up just briefly and then drops Planets. away again. So, yeah, it is quite quite difficult to um, manage the species. Yeah. So speaking of masts, how would you say that climate change affects your work? There's probably two ways where climate change has the potential to affect the work that we're doing. Um, one is that if you had climate change affecting the differences between two consecutive summers, and that could potentially result in increased masts, so having more masts or more frequent masts. Um, the current models don't suggest that that is the case, um, but it is it is definitely a possibility. And if there's increased um, climate fluctuations, then you may see that happening. It seems that just an increase in temperature isn't enough to cause mass to happen. It's actually the differences between the different summers. The other way that uh, climate change has the potential to affect these species is that they're located in um, high valleys. um, Sure. Well, sorry, in the Canterbury High Country. Mm -hmm. And if that habitat disappears, they might not have anywhere to go, basically. So as the climate warms, Mm -hmm. um, there's potential that those uh, environments... They're losing their habitat. Yeah, could become um, less favorable for the species. Sure. So what do you say to people who just don't seem to get it, who can't seem to understand why there's all this effort over one bird or why it's so important to do the predator control that you do? I think 
we all have this sort of obligation to protect wilderness areas and to make sure that the species that inhabit those areas are safe and don't go extinct. I mean, I think it would be a huge injustice to let a species go extinct when we have the capacity to be able to prevent that from happening. Whether it's a parakeet or coelophanta snail, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's still a species that um, we should be protecting. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think if you look at uh, the species that have gone extinct, species like the bush wren or the laughing owl, it seems pretty disappointing to not be able to see those species, and it would be a shame for the next generation not be able to be able to experience the same thing with kakariki or kakapo. That's so true. It's almost like an international responsibility when there's such endemic, unique species here, isn't it? Definitely. I think each country has an obligation to protect the species that falls within it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. This has been absolutely fantastic. I've learned so many things about our enfranted kakariki. Um, Yeah, thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks a lot for having me. That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now, never miss an episode. (laughs) 